Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Donna Casasanta was worried about her son, Dean. Right around the holidays in December of 1980, she got a phone call from a man with a raspy voice who presented himself as an authority figure. The man told Donna that the car she had loaned to Dean and Tina was found abandoned in Los Angeles. Strange, Donna thought. Remember, Dean, his wife Tina, and their baby Holly had moved to Texas months earlier. They'd kept in touch through phone calls and a letter. So as far as Donna knew, they were still living in Texas, doing just fine. So why would their car be in Los Angeles? The same man called Donna a second time and said he knew some people who could drive the car from California to the Daytona Speedway in Florida, just north of Donna's home. They wanted $1,000 for their troubles, he said. Donna reluctantly agreed to the arrangement, never expecting what would happen next. He says, um, okay, we found somebody's gonna drive back for you and they want to meet you at the racetrack at midnight. What did the man sound like? Did he sound old, young? I would take him somewhere around 40-ish. The voice was grouchy, like a, a smoker maybe. Who was this man? He never identified himself. And he never identified the people who'd be driving the car back to Florida. He spoke in an authoritative manner, Donna said, but she knew in her gut that something was wrong. Donna was a waitress in town and she had several police friends. After telling them about the phone call, they agreed to go with her to the speedway at midnight. And they drove in real fast when they started getting out of the car and they had robes on and stuff. And there was three women. And two of them looked to be maybe at the most 17, maybe 18. And then the woman who was driving though, looked to be in her early 30s. And they had robes on and sandals on. The police came out and started talking to them and asked them for IDs and stuff like that. Then they told me, go ahead, take your car and go on home. The car these women were driving was indeed Donna's, the same car she had loaned to her son. A 1978 two-door red burgundy AMC Concorde. Was there anything unusual about the car? No fingerprints, no evidence of a baby, no nothing. I should have had the police look at it. We looked for things of the babies or things of theirs. I told the, the, the women, let me talk to my son. That's all I ask. What did these women say to you? You can't talk to your son. He can't talk to you. He's joined this group. He has to give everything up that belongs to him. No contact with him. No contact at all. Did they identify themselves in any way? Well, I think they did to the police. I know they held them. I know when I was pulling out, they put them in the police car. I guess they were taking them to the police station. I would later call the Daytona Police Department about this encounter, only to find out that they had no record of it. It wasn't clear whether they'd lost the police report from 1981, or if a formal police report about the incident was ever filed. According to Donna, 
The older woman driving the car identified herself only as Sister Susan. She looked to be in her 30s and wore a white robe, and she forbade the two younger women from speaking. The older woman who was driving, do you remember anything about her face, anything at all? What color hair she had? She had short, blondish light hair. I call it dishwater blonde. It was just dirty, I don't know. Her eyes was rather sunken. Yeah, she's skinny. She wasn't having a big skin. Did they speak? Yes, they wanted to talk to me several times. And she went like that and put her hand up and they shut up. And so she was the one who told you, your son cannot talk yes. to you. He doesn't want to. Doesn't want to, yeah. That he's joined the group. This was the first time I was hearing about a woman named Sister Susan. In my conversations with law enforcement, no one by that name had been implicated in any wrongdoing or charged with any crime in connection with the case. To my knowledge, Sister Susan isn't a suspect, and I wasn't aware of any evidence indicating that she or any group associated with her had information about the murders of Dean and Tina. But I could sense the family thought otherwise, and I asked them about it. Do you think that this group, this cult, is responsible or knows who killed Junior and why? I do. I really do. My thought is that maybe he was trying to get away from him. He realized the mistake he made, but it was too late. He couldn't get out. To me, it was planned. Donna, the women who brought the car back, do you think that those women know what happened? I do. I do. I sat with the family for three and a half hours that day. The pain in their voices was as if the murders had happened yesterday. I went to the beach and I sat over there on the beach and I cried and I said, dear God, dear God, dear God, please, I can't take no more. Don't give me no more. And I prayed, I said, Father, I just want to know where he's at. I just want to know what happened. Let me know something. And about a week later, I had this dream. I could see him in a distance. And I heard this voice and he said, Mom, Mom, I'm all right, I'm all right. <laughs> I came to Florida in search of answers. And while I got some, I still had many questions. Who was Sister Susan and the two women who returned the car? Did they take part in or have knowledge of the murders? Did police ever fingerprint these women? Where did they go after they dropped off the car? And was it possible the killings were committed by someone totally random, like a deranged hitchhiker? And then what about Holly? I'd covered so many missing children cases by this point in my career, and I knew the stats. The odds that Holly was alive somewhere were not good. Maybe she'd been killed and dumped in the woods and her remains overlooked by searchers. How would detectives even go about looking for her now? If Holly is listening to this, what do you want to say? You gotta 
Great big family waiting on you. <laughs> Great big family. Lots of love here. Yep. Has no idea her parents were murdered. Probably has no idea where she came from. Right. And maybe a mother of her own. Right. To people listening who may know what happened here, what do you want to say to them? Please come forward. Mm -hmm. Even if it's anonymously, let us know who and why. Was it the group? Was it someone else? Why? What could they have possibly done to have deserved what you did to them or what that person did to them? It goes over and over in my mind. What Junior's and Tina's last few thoughts were. Did they watch each other perish? It just breaks my heart thinking about it. I knew that one of the first priorities was to nail down a detailed timeline. No easy task when you're dealing with various family members trying to recall events from 40 years ago. Based on my interviews and research, the timeline goes something like this. Sometime in 1980, Dean announced that he'd been offered a job he couldn't refuse in Texas. A skilled cabinet maker, Dean told his family that he was promised work with D.R. Horton, a home construction company based in Arlington, Texas, close to Dallas. But when Dean packed up his mother's car and left Florida in the spring of 1980 with Tina and Holly, he didn't drive straight to Texas. Instead, the family drove to Baltimore, Maryland, where they stayed with Tina's older sister, Sherry Green, from May until August. Dean got a job working at some shop that they realigned brakes for like big tractor trailers and things like that. They got a place of their own and it was a nice little apartment. Tina was no longer my pesky kid sister. She was a young woman. She was a mother. She was madly in love with Dean. She followed him to the ends of the earth. She wanted to be the perfect wife and mother. Those three months they were in Maryland means so much to me. In August of 1980, Dean and Tina then packed up their red AMC Concorde and left Baltimore for Louisville, Texas. They stayed with Dean's cousins for barely one month before getting their own apartment. And this is where the timeline drops off. Sherry says she and Tina had been keeping in touch. But in October, one of her letters was returned. We wrote a couple letters, but I'd sent her that letter and it wasn't long before it came back. Mark moved, left no forwarding address. And then I thought, oh no, what on earth is going on? moved and left no forwarding address. But they'd just moved to the area a few weeks earlier. I reached out to Dean's cousin, Becky, whom he and Tina had stayed with when they first got to Texas. It was actually Becky who snapped the now famous photo of Dean and Tina sitting on a brown sofa with baby Holly in the middle. Decades later, she admittedly remembers little from their short visit, but a few things do stand out. While Dean and Tina did move into an apartment of their own, Becky says Dean did not want the apartment to be put in his name. And instead, he may have used her father's name. She also remembers that Dean and Tina were not living in that apartment for very long, maybe only a week, when their new landlord phoned her father asking for the rent because Dean and Tina had disappeared. So the Klauses relocate from Florida to Texas, settle into an apartment, and seemingly just vanish? Looking back 40 years later, 
Becky says she thinks Dean might have been running from someone or something. It just seems like something was just a little off with them, but I, I couldn't pinpoint what it was. Mm-hmm. You know? That was the last time anyone actually saw Dean and Tina. Stay with me. We'll be back after this short break. The Knot is where you'll find vendors for every wedding. Floral to fawn over. Cakes you almost don't want to cut. Oh, it looks so good. DJs to drop it to. Venues worthy of your grid. Photographers that make every hour golden hour. Really, vendors for any vibe. With the help of fresh reviews and a few useful filters, you can find your vendors faster than you can say, I do. The Knot Vendor Marketplace. Find vendors for every wedding at thenot.com slash audio. As the weeks and months went by, and 1980 became 1981, relatives began to seriously worry, not knowing that Dean and Tina's bodies had actually been found in the woods in Houston, some 270 miles from their last known address outside of Dallas. To this day, it's still unclear when exactly the couple was killed, because their remains were badly damaged by animals. It's right around the same time the bodies were found, in the first or second week of January 1981, that the three mystery women drove Donna's car back to Florida and informed her that her son and his wife had joined their religious group and wanted no further contact with the family. None of this was making sense. The only thing the Klaus family had to go on was the women's claim that Dean's car had been found in California Maybe it really was in California. Or maybe California was just mentioned as a ruse to throw the family off. And the car was always in Texas. We simply don't know. Even though Dean and Tina's unidentified bodies had already been found in Houston, it certainly didn't occur to their families to file a missing persons report with the Houston authorities. Because Dean and Tina did not live or work anywhere near that area. So how was anyone to know that that's where they'd end up? Furthermore, missing person cases are always a challenge for police. It's not a crime for an adult to disappear. An adult, like Dean, can choose to disappear. Maybe to escape a bad relationship, or financial difficulty, or any number of problems. So unless law enforcement has evidence of foul play, it's difficult for them to know how to proceed given the resources they have. And the Klaus family was led to believe that Dean and Tina had willingly joined a cult and intended to cut off contact. Do you think that this cult had any involvement in their murders? I feel more like, yes, they were probably involved or they know absolutely who was involved. I know they have to have known something. He probably died trying to save her from being killed or stop the baby from being taken from them. Her mom did not give her up. That baby was her life. And what about Dean's former employer, D.R. Horton? Maybe the construction company, which is still in business today, had information about Dean and their records that could be useful in the investigation. Our producer, Evan Goldman, made a series of phone calls to D.R. Horton inquiring about Dean's employment there. Evan had Dean's social security number, which was provided to us by the family. Hi, this is Evan. 
Hi, Evan. Calling you back with Dr. Horton. Oh, thank you for getting back to me. Okay. Based upon the social security number that was provided, I can't find anybody in our database with that information. It's very possible it could have been through a contracting agency. And if it was through a contract agency, we don't have that information. Oh, uh, no idea what agencies or contractors you might have been working with at that time? Uh, I have no clue. The company had no record of Dean ever working there? Well, that was interesting. So did Dean lie to his family about a job opportunity in Texas with Dr. Horton? Or did he work for some outside contracting agency? These unknowns only added to the mounting number of unanswered questions in a case that spans four decades and three states. I thought the surest way to find out these answers would be to locate Holly, assuming she was still alive. I wondered if any progress was being made on that front, so I reached out to Allison Peacock. Allison, if you remember, was one of the two genetic genealogists who cracked the identities of Dean and Tina. Allison is in constant contact with law enforcement and has taken on a unique role of her own in this case. After the story came out that Dean and Tina had been identified, did anybody come forward claiming to be Holly? We started getting people contacting us on the Holly Facebook page, and I began getting emails from women that thought that they might be Holly or from even people in the community that thought they knew Holly. And can you give us a little sampling of maybe one or two of those that you remember? One guy who seemed pretty credible said he had dated a woman named Holly Marie who grew up within about 10 miles of where Dean and Tina's bodies were found and thought maybe she could be the Holly Marie we were looking for. So we did check that out and it did not turn into anything I also heard from a woman who said that she'd been told her whole life that the family that raised her was not her family and that her real parents were dead. She was told later as an adult that she had been dropped off at her grandmother's house in the Daytona Beach area and that she was about a year old. I'm sure you looked into that pretty quickly. Sadly, it turned out that she was the biological child of the people that had raised her her whole life. She was glad to just have answers. And she said she felt like Dean and Tina had inspired her to do this, you know, and she later went to their graves in Houston. She really got a lot out of it and feels like she got some closure, you know, for her life. Allison, what was it like for you to get these calls, these emails, these messages from women, and then actually speak to them not knowing, you know, maybe this could be Holly. You can't get excited about everyone that comes along. As someone that uses science in what they do, I wait to be proved that something's right. And so I just took these as opportunities and decided that even if they weren't Holly, we could at least help the people that had a compelling connection to her story. If Holly were alive today, she'd be 42 years old. She was only 10 months old when she was last seen by relatives in the fall of 1980. So how do you begin to search for someone four decades later? How would you even know what they look like today? I spoke with John Bischoff at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. You put out an age-progressed photo of what Holly would look like today at 42 years old. How are those photos created? It's part 
science part artistic ability. We change, we evolve over time. You know, you have your mom's nose, you got your dad's smile, and you got your mom's ears, and, and oh, you know, all that stuff. And there's more truth to that than fiction, right? So what we do is take family reference samples, and our forensic artists work with the family to figure out what facial features on Holly did other family members have, and what do those family members look like around the age of 40? So we can take that image and add those facial features to build out what is essentially an age progression. Despite the creation of an age-progressed photo that someone might recognize, the odds of finding Holly some 40 years after her disappearance were not in her favor. A lot of it depends on the case type, the concern of non-family abductions. The first 48 hours are absolutely most critical, but that's why we rely heavily on the pushing the images to the media, trying to keep the images out there. That's where age progressions come into play, because not only do we use those for the public to look at and see if they recognize anything, we also use them as a just a, a new starting point for a new publicity campaign to keep a new image out there in the community. Because we know after time goes on, it gets more and more difficult to find the, the child. As an organization, we hold on to the fact that there's always hope, right? And we can't give up hope on this child. We have to look, and we have to look now. As the investigation moves forward, there's one key question puzzling everyone. How did the bodies of Dean and Tina Klaus end up in Houston, so far from their last known address in Louisville? Coming up in Episode 5... The family drives a thousand miles from Florida to Texas in search of answers. It's a strong feeling of justice that we want. We know what happened to him. We don't know why. I wanted to see where he would leave. So the site would be about 50 feet this way. We're at the clear path. Watch his stick, Mom. Why, dear Lord, why? <laughs> oh, he knows, Mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's next on What About Holly. Listen to What About Holly ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.